and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. Every four years, it seems I have a conversation with someone, and they always are asking me, what is that blue county that's surrounded by red? Well, that county is Dauphin County. It's uh, where Harrisburg is. It's it's right in the center of the state. And in fact, last November, the Biden-Harris ticket found over 12,000 more votes than the Trump-Pence ticket did. The presidential years, Dauphin is reliably blue, but county government is solidly red. Our guest today, Eric Epstein, is trying to change all that. More importantly, the party affiliation, Eric brings a lifetime commitment of being a watchdog. He's devoted years and years to bringing more transparency in and around Harrisburg. This is exactly the role of county controller, and this is why I'm eager to sit down with him. I'm looking forward to hearing about his unique background and his vision for the next four years in Dauphin County government. The problem with per diems is threefold. It's unaccountable. Um, it's tax-free, and there's no oversight. Activist Eric Epstein has been fighting per diems for years. Eric Epstein, welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks for having me, Ari. I much appreciate it. Hey, Eric, before we plunge in, I know we're in the, the final month of uh, this campaign. I wanted to ask you if we can go back in time. Mm-hmm. You did incredible work in the 90s recording oral histories of Holocaust survivors. Right. And as anti-Semitism has gripped the Commonwealth and gripped our nation at unprecedented levels, I'm wondering if you could just share with listeners a little about that work. Well, you know, one of the things I've done in Holocaust studies, I I wrote um, the Dictionary of the Holocaust. And the reason I wrote that is when I would lecture or interact with students and survivors, I found that the frame of references uh, were being lost on people, whether, you you know, and, and some of it, you know, it's just time. People didn't know Goering for Goebbels. They didn't know Slovakia from Slovenia. And there's huge differences. Huge. So what I'm trying to say is there's huge differences in experiences of Holocaust survivors, depending on the country they're in, depending on the time they're invaded by the Germans, and depending on the degree of collaboration within the country. On top of that, you know, we recorded liberators and we recorded anybody who basically had an experience 33 to 45 in Europe. And I would also add Northern Africa. A lot of times people fail to understand Northern Africa. The Middle East also played a role in the destruction of Jews. So that being said, you know, what we tried to do is construct a interview with folks where you went from what was their normal, what was their regular day to day life to the slow, gradual progression to abnormal. And then if they survived, which they did, if I was obviously interviewing them, although a lot of people they uh, were surrounded with didn't survive, you know, trying to tell my students that, look, you're viewing these interviews and you're viewing these people in the comfort of a well-heated home in a normal society with a full stomach. What's different today is that it's not a normal society. You know, some of the tropes that I could dismiss easily when I first started Holocaust studies, like blood libel, are back again. You know, Jews using the blood of children. 
So what I found is that oral history was a good way for people to understand what had happened. Here's a human being in your setting who you wouldn't know, you know, walking down the street was a Holocaust survivor. And frankly, nobody's in a position to make a moral judgment because you don't know what you would have done in a similar situation. And frankly, the Nazis were very good at eliminating the strongest, the richest, the smartest. So one of the things you have to realize with Holocaust survivors is there was a tremendous amount of guilt. Why did I survive? And there's a lot of guilt because people are judging them by normal standards. Why did I behave in such a way during an, an absolute medieval dark age nightmare? What I try to let people know is the Holocaust is like a crime scene. You have the forensic evidence. This is what happened. I mean, I spent six and a half years in Europe. You know, you could tell when you go to different death camps and there's six. And again, the, the verbiage matters. A concentration camp is not a death camp. And just like when people throw out words like Dachau and Auschwitz and say they're the same, they're not. And so the similarities that I'm seeing now is the dilution of the terminology. You know, you call them people Gestapo, not they're not. If they were, you'd be dead. You know, but at the same time, we're in a dangerous place where information has been manipulated and digested and people are, are believing the unbelievable. So in stuff that you would commonly deny, like the veracity of an election, we're having a debate. That's dangerous, extremely dangerous. 1933, there's no television. 80% of Germans went to the movies on Saturday. So yeah, you have a, you have a narrative that you can tell. Here where people have options, they choose to plug in to their option or narrative. So one out of every six Holocaust inquiries on uh, Google is denial. And it's not denial, the good old Jew-hating denial. Jews killed our Lord, ergo they're guilty, ergo we're justified in killing them. It's very sophisticated. So the reality is that anybody with an appreciable memory is very old. And it's very difficult to come in contact with them. So we recorded a lot of interviews. I did them. And there's a big difference between doing interviews before and after Schindler's List. That kind of changed everything in much the same way as the Holocaust film series in the 70s enlightened people. You look back at it now, it's kind of awkward. But what you find is that it's dangerous to have people interview folks, protagonists, antagonists, in other words, victims, perpetrators mostly bystanders, and you have to be knowledgeable in what you're doing. Because if you say to somebody, hungry 44 March, well, that's when the Nazis arrived. They weren't there prior to that. That's when the deportations occurred. Much different than saying Germany 33, Germany 39, Germany 45. So there was a lot of work. I think oral history provides you with the ability to access. I mean, we, we live in a time now where a lot of media is visual you know, spoon fed. So the reality is, even though I learned early on as a professor, you can have a syllabus. And when you have suggested readings, you might as well have no readings because none of the suggested readings are read. So how can I, you know, as a professor, you know, impact you? And the class was always overbooked. And one of the things I would ask my students to watch the film Nuremberg by Lenny Reifenstahl, where there's 250,000 people working and walking together as a swastika. You've probably seen the image. So I'd ask my students, raise your hand if you would have been a Nazi. And everybody said no. And I said, no, y'all would have been Nazis. You're not going to be the one person marching against the grain. And the parallels are similar today. The information out there 
is marginal, but people believe it. People don't want to pull against the grain. I'm going to a school board meeting tonight debating masking and anti-masking. You know, it's very ugly, very nasty, very disturbing. Most people in the community won't show up. All they have to do is get into their car, go to the meeting. They won't do it. So the danger in our society is apathy, indifference. History never repeats itself the same way. That's a canard. That's not true. History recreates itself with different settings, different contexts, different characters, different motifs. But it's a very dangerous, nasty zeitgeist out there. And if you look at the oral histories where I'm sitting down with people on some of the interviews, I interviewed one guy, 17 <laughs> different episodes from Poland. He just had to get it out. Now, some of the stuff he told me was just factually not not correct. It doesn't mean what he had to say in totem wasn't correct. It was not. But one of the things that I learned, and I think since the Holocaust interviews, you see people interviewing World War II survivors, Korean survivors, people understanding the value of oral history. So I always think, you know, we kind of are nostalgic and romantic about McCarthyism. This is what I would have done. Or my black students tell me what they would do in Mississippi in the 1960s. Well, it's not reality. You know, what most people do is go along to get along. And in my campaign, the parallel is we are fighting a machine that's been in existence since Harvey Taylor 100 years. And while people know it's unrelenting, unremitting, dark, people in a lot of ways profit from it. They, they know someone who got a job, they got a job, they got a contract. So it's always, in my mind, the bystander, not the person directly involved. Uh, with committing the crime or being a victim of the crime, but the overwhelming majority of human beings are bystanders. And to make that point clear, we will call it a success on November 2nd if 25% of the population get off the grass and vote. You kidding me? And if it rains, God forbid it rains, then the numbers will be lower. You know, people from all stripes get to vote. You know, on Monday night before the election, somebody, Monday night's a big night for world wrestling. People that believe that's true get to vote. I've got to find them. People who are in synagogue, people who are in college. So it's a humbling experience to go door to door and see what's on people's mind. But you don't have 15 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, Ari, to make a discussion. So what happens is we start a discussion today talking about the Holocaust, and then we make parallels about mob psychology today. When you're door to door, you're looking for commonality. And in central Pennsylvania, that usually is, and I'm not saying this to be disparaging, but are you an Eagle fan or a Steeler fan? Are you a Notre Dame or a Penn State fan? And the reason why is it's to humanize. We're all clannish. We're all part of a pack. You know, that's the way it is, the way it's always going to be. You want to be part of something. You don't want to be the other. So I've spent most of my career where people after going out and, you know, being a gladiator where people don't say anything afterwards saying, good, oh, that's really good. Well, I don't know if they're also saying to the other guy, good, 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 that's really good. You know, so the word of point now, and Patty Smith, who's wonderful as my campaign manager, where this is a legitimately nonpartisan campaign. I'm a Truman Democrat. I have strong Republican support. My radio show is called The Democrat That Thinks Right. You don't have to feel like you have to say something because of any affiliation or religion. But most people, and let's be honest, that, that's courageous. If you are at a, and you're talking about anti-Semitism to begin this uh, interview, if you're at a party 
And somebody tells an anti-Semitic joke, everybody's uncomfortable, but few people will confront the person. And so that's what I've done with my life. I don't necessarily like it, but somebody has to confront the meanness, the hate, the ugliness. Otherwise, it grows. It's just like a garden. If you don't weed it, the weeds will take it over. It's not a popular gig. Tough campaign to win, even though we have more voters, the Democrats don't vote. So we have a 7,900 voter advantage, but the actual voting, turnout voting, I have a 3,900 disadvantage. And it's very difficult when you find somebody and they say, oh, you won the election. I said, no, I won the primary. What's the primary? And it's like, wow, okay. And you have a PhD. Uh, You know, next week we'll do colors in the rainbow. What do you mean? What's the primary? You know, it's, I have a school board meeting tonight with the ninth largest school district in Central Dolphin. Two issues will be there. Masking and why isn't the football team playing this Saturday? Eric, before we jump further, a lot, a lot's unpackaged there. And thank you on a personal level for that work you did in, in the 90s and keeping the memories alive. What was the jump? I mean, were you from even a boy uh, involved in politics and activism? It's not often you find uh, historians and academics getting involved in electoral politics and activism. Early on, I mean, I remember 68. I clearly remember the Humphrey-Nixon-Wallace election. Didn't watch cartoons as a kid, watch uh, Meet the Press. You know, I lived in a household with my grandfather, my uncle, my father, and my mother, so that if you wanted to be included in a discussion, you had to operate at a high level. You know, reading and religion were uh, premium, as was sports. Back then, it was, you know, different to be politically progressive and also a good athlete. And, And that's where I understood the unifying, integrating force of athletes. You can bust someone with a good intention. It usually doesn't work well. But if you're on the same team and you're kicking the crap out of the other guy, you can form a commonality. So I come from a very redneck area, which I feel totally comfortable with. I didn't know that buck hunting was not a Jewish holiday until I went to college. So I would say, you know, for the Holocaust, I remember the event. But you also have to remember that my backyard is Three Mile Island. So I've had pretty traumatic, defining events. Uh, my fourth birthday occurred when JFK was buried. I remember that. So, you know, my family was very illiterate, very much a Trump, Truman Democrat. So that was just part of the scenery. And also for Jews at the time, we were very uh, active in uh, refusing it, getting Soviet Jews to America. You know, the way I was raised was really simple. And it was this, if you can read and write, you can do anything. And my parents and family didn't penalize me if it was my idea. So to me, the worst thing you could do growing up was follow the pack. But if you're going to go out and stake a position, we're with you. Granted, you know, some of the things I did were dubious. But that being said, life is a series of habits. And you develop habits as a child that become, you know, cemented as an adult. Hopefully your views aren't, but maybe your habits are. So, uh, yeah, I've always been political. We had an underground, was one of the people started an underground newspaper in high school. Yeah, I think my first political deal was protesting against hair length in school. In the old days, you can only have your hair at a certain length. So to me, it is you know, part of, I, I guess, uh, religious and the family DNA. Dare I use the term DNA? Uh, I mean, Three Mile Island, as you said, is in your backyard, and it's right. it's, it's very much um, cemented in the minds of many Pennsylvanians, but especially folks in Dauphin County. So 
if you can speak to uh, your activism around a power plant and even memories from uh, from those fateful days. Well, you know, I have a very unique narrative. Growing up, my father was very pro-nuclear and we would drive down to Three Mile Island, look at the clouds and say, you know, this is the future. You know, we're lucky to have it here. People embraced it. There was little opposition, you know, and we believed it would be cheap, limitless, as did most folks. And the jobs were good here. People forget that. Really good. High peg. So my evolution was such that by... 77, 78, my opposition to nuclear uh, a lot was economic and just, you know, looking at metrics, you know, what this doesn't make sense. Where's the water coming from? Where's the waste going? You know, my dad was a business owner. Why isn't Wall Street investing in this? This is an aberration. It's a fictional economic narrative. And that's still my perspective, which I think is an anomaly. I was in college uh, during the accident, came back and got involved in 82, and then have been with TMI Alert as their spokesperson or their chairman since 84. And I do believe in this, and you'll see this with my work on the Holocaust and the necessity of longitudinal engagement. You know, we now have an itinerant society. You know, I was growing up, the rabbi stayed forever. The doctor was part of your community. The attorney was part of your community. You now have a world, an economy, a workplace where people move around, intermingle. You know, when I was growing up, you had one new kid a year. When I was growing up, there was one overweight fat kid. It's different now. I have a lot of kids that are overweight. I got kids getting dropped in all the time. So it's like constantly the chant. There's no stability. So, you know, I had the good fortune of growing up in an area that was very warm, very welcoming in, in that area. The major industrial component was steel. We had two steel mills in Harrisburg. We had 13,000 people at Bethlehem Steel. A lot of people. At, so we had Harco, Bethlehem Steel, and we're at the southern tip of the coal mine. So there's a, it's a more of a blue-collar mindset. TMI came nuclear. And if you're Pennsylvania, that was the natural progression from a coal and steel state. And it all came apart on March 28, 1979. And then to make things further bizarre was the fact that people here, well, first of all, the China syndrome was in town. Nobody knew what nuclear power was. So people were going to the movies and looking at Jane Fonda and, uh, you know, Michael Douglas to get a sense of what's happening. But in addition to that, this is a very trusting area. This is a Bible Belt conservative Republican area. And, you know, very heavy uh, overlay of Quaker, Mennonite, peaceful people that are somewhat well off and were just stunned that they would be lied to by local government, state government and federal government. So it was also a shot heard around the world. It was the beginning of end of nuclear power, March 28th, 1979 here. And, you know, today, actually, I was doing a newscast on a worker that was killed on Friday, trying to clean up TMI. So, you know, in terms of history, you know, being Jewish, it's, you know, we're in our 5,800 year. That's a pretty big span. Uh, I used to laugh when people would say Y2K. I said, well, we're on our fourth one. It'll be okay. You know, TMI nuclear years are forever. So, you know, one of my takeaways is the importance of staying involved and staying engaged in an issue. And, we live in a time frame now where people have the attention span of a fruit fly. Well, let's, uh, I mean, I, I hope our listeners don't have the attention span of a fruit fly, and I'm, I'm grateful that we've crossed 5,000 listeners. But let's take it now, uh, yeah. 2021, or in the Jewish calendar, 5782. And in the final month of this campaign, I want to pick up 
we have listeners across the Commonwealth, but plenty of listeners uh, in DC and New York and elsewhere outside. And I want to pick up on a term you used, itinerant. You know, when I look at, at Dauphin County and the, the greater Harrisburg media market, there's been tremendous changes, uh, mm-hmm. often at the expense of family farms, uh, but a lot, a lot of growth, uh, a lot of traffic on the roads. But I've had a lot of colleagues in, you know, the recent election four years ago, even eight years ago, they, they look at, they see a lot of red, and then they see that blue county when they look at the presidential maps. So if you could just speak to uh, a little of the demographic changes, a little of why Dauphin County is consistently blue in presidentials, but red otherwise, I think that'd be very enlightening as we plunge deeper into your campaign. The Republican Party, I think, is better financed, better organized, and that usually leads to better results. I think they have basically incorporated patronage as a cornerstone. And, uh, you know, people say whatever they want, but at the end of the day, they like the job. They like the house. They like the time. They like stability. And so the Republican Party is uh, here is very good at rewarding people at the county level through the school board level. It's a commonwealth. So, you know, you're looking at a school district like ours, $217 million budget. We're three times bigger than the city of Harrisburg. So the way it works here for Republicans to be effective, the same engineers, the same contractors, the same people who run local municipalities run the county municipalities. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of jobs. Harrisburg has always been bipolar in the sense that every eight years when there's a change in governor, new people flood in from Pittsburgh and Philly. But and the coal region. But for the most part, you know, this is a recession proof area. So I think there's a resistance to change. You know, if you look at our core industries, you know, you have Hershey chocolate is an anchor. Rite Aid is here, DH distributing. And like government, employment is traditionally low here. You know, benefits are traditionally high here. So people know that it's a rotten tree, but they're still harvesting the bitter fruit. And, you know, in other words, everybody knows how devastatingly corrupt just about every aspect of political life is here. But they still vote. Republicans vote more often than Democrats. And the reality is the only reason it's blue during the presidential election is the same reason that turnout is high across the country. You know, people don't pay attention. If you're on the school board, you have the potential of raising somebody's taxes far more frequently than a president. You know, for whatever reason, your emergency political responder, the people that pick up your trash, educate your kids, I nine out of 10 people, eight out of 10, I'm just spitballing here, don't know who they are. You know, and that goes hand in hand with the lack of media coverage. You have a newspaper now that's only operating two days a week and on Sunday. And it's basically, you know, a glorified fish wrapper. There's no information on local races. You turn on the news. And the world is coming to an end every day. You know, it's kind of like Ray Bradbury versus the mutant Godzilla. You know, it's just some wild stuff there. But people don't read. I mean, let's be honest. You know, when I was growing up, there was a morning paper, an afternoon paper. There was a nuclear family who talked about issues at the table. Now people are programmed. They listen, you know, to information presented to them unchallenged. You know, I'll be at a meeting tonight where I guarantee there'll be several uncivil outbursts and people tolerate that they score points well why don't we talk about why we're masking why eric did you vote for masking it's not about the veracity of masking as much as that i want the kids back in school there was so much social emotional psychological carnage when kids weren't in school so that if i have a kid in school and there's a covid case and the class has 30 students 
and I mandate masking, 29 students can stay. If masking is voluntary, I got to send all the kids home. And But you're not having that discussion now. What we're having is me being called a communist or a horrible person or people using terms they don't even know what they mean, honestly, you know, and we're at a place now where we used bipolar used to be good, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. I'm in the radical middle. I'm a radical centrist. There's got to be a way to resolve these issues. It's not either or win, lose some game. And the problem is that volume usually prevails over substance. And so in order to get a message out, I have to raise money. I'm not going to outraise my opponent. Nobody knows my opponent. The election will be about me uh, because I've been around for 40 years. And I can tell you what's going to happen. I mean, in the last week in October, there'll be commercials with me drowning puppies and beating harp seals to death. You, you know, and why? So people don't show up to vote. Like they need more of a disincentive. My opinion has always been I ignore my opponent. Uh, there was a basketball coach named John Wooden who had 11 national championships. I'm not worried about my opponent. I'm going to present to you who I am. You know who I am. Sometimes you don't like me. Sometimes you like me, but you know that I'm fair. I'm honest. I put people in jail, Republican, Democrat, old, young, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter because the rules of the the rules of engagement, I apply the same. And that's essentially what people want, fairness. So, you know, as we all, I have a brand and I have a reputation and it is, you know, some people find me entertaining and caustic at the same time. I don't care. If you want me to implement the rules of the game and people don't, if you want fair, you know, then that I'm the guy, I'm the underdog here, which doesn't bother me. What bothers me is I think most, not just Dolphin County, it's most Americans are very comfortable with the status quo. People Eric, get comfortable with the way it is. And that's why I will be painted at the end of the election as just a, oh my God, you don't want Eric there. Well, why wouldn't you want Eric there? You'll have a fair shot at a contract. If the contract isn't going the way it is, I'll kick you off. You know, I basically, here's how it is, pal. You got a contract. You said you were going to do A, B, and C. You did none of them. Get lost. You know, that's my frame of reference. I'm not going to change that. And, you know, the amount of money that flows through Dauphin County is huge. This is a juggernaut. You got Hershey. You got a casino, large tourism tracks. The last thing people who are inside of the uh, machine want is me just cleaning all the schmutz off the window. Make your own judgment. Who gets the contract to me is not important. It's that everybody gets to compete fairly and produce what you're going to say. For instance, one of the things I've noticed in government, and I do a lot of right to know requests, is a lot of money is hidden under software contracts and then software service contracts. Nobody wants to read it. It's too technical. Well, if the part is obsolete after two or three years, why do I have a five-year service contract? Unless you're, you know, a primetime schmuck. And it looks benign, but it's not benign. You know, every contract should be just based on merits. Are you going to produce what you say you're going to produce? If not, look, then, you know, when it comes to employees, I'm willing to do a corrective action program with people. Sometimes people have issues. Look, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm very open about that. I took six weeks. It's tough. It was hard. But I want people to succeed, not fail. But I want them to play by the rules. And I think that's why it's counterintuitive. But that's why Trump and Obama were so 
popular as they were viewed as iconoclastic. Something new, something fresh. You know, I think with Trump, it's like, well, let's just blow it all up, see how that feels. Well, okay, not so great. With Obama, there was hope. And then I think Obama realized that, wow, there's institutional intransience. How, you know, it, it's not as easy as you think. So any change to be meaningful, to be lasting, is going to be incremental. If you come in and bust stuff up, it'll get put back together as soon as you're gone. Eric, thank you. With every row office in Dauphin County being held by Republicans, uh, it's not a partisan statement. I mean, sometimes you just need diversity. Right. I think that's good for for government at any level. You use the term underdog uh, in preparation for us sitting down. I checked with friends in Dauphin County, and they they consistently use the term watchdog. Uh, ah, yeah. I, I even had someone say that his middle name is watchdog. So that's clearly your 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 ethos. Right. So go. let's get granular. In preparation of sitting down, I also saw that the county has about a $245 million budget. Uh, you alluded to software contracts, but give listeners a sense of what a county controller uh, and a county as large and diverse as Dauphin County uh, could or should be doing. Well, there's a couple of things we can do. I think transactions over a certain amount of money should be public. And I think the way we present information uh, should be in a way that people understand what we're doing. You know, when you say controller, people, first of all, don't know what it means. And second of all, don't know, care. When you say controller and Eric Epstein, then they're concerned because you have close to 20 million in gaming funds. You have a large tourism tri- tributary. You know, you were saying the amount of money in the county government. Well, that's significant. That's a lot of money, a lot of contracts. You know, anything from who mows the lawn to who paints the wall. And so as a controller, you examine the contracts. And I've developed an expertise in that, not only as a school board member, but as a government reform advocate. And remember, and this is what I think makes me different. If somebody who you would normally or think I would normally oppose to something good, you reward them. Why am I going to hit somebody over the head when they do what they ask? You know, I'm not here to be in perennial conflict. I'm here to make sure things operate in a way where people stay in the lane and we get the biggest bang for the buck. I'll give you an example. We, I was at a Dolphin Prison Board meeting where they authorized $27,000 to buy a bench. And I was like, are you out of your mind? $27,000, what is this, a magic bench with beans coming out of it? And, you know, the sheriff and the DA were defending it and they never did the due diligence. They said, well, the building is 40 or 50, 60, 70 years old. I said, well, actually the building is the courthouse. You probably shouldn't be spending money from the prison to fund the courthouse. So I think some things that happen are just because they become habit. So I said, folks, why wasn't there an RFP? You know, what are we doing here? And, you know, they were all confused and combative. And, 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 you know, I probably could have presented the information differently. But as a controller, you're drilling down. Sometimes you're in the weeds. You're setting macro and micro standards. If I say to you, here's the contract, we're going to revisit it in a year. We're going to revisit it in a year. There's a number of jobs a controller does in addition to monitoring the contract. But I think part of what I've learned over my career is, to make information accessible and available. However, being a citizen is hard work. You have to look at the information. You have to look at what I'm doing and be willing to go through it. I mean, when I do right to know requests with the legislature, you get several hundreds of pages and it, it takes a while to put it together. So we have an expertise about being able to explain to people what's happening. I believe in giving people an attaboy or a pat on the back. If they're doing the right job, that's good. I mean, if I'm successful, I shouldn't have to do as much as I do at the initial stages. You know, you're basically trying to inculcate a culture. And you're seeing controllers 
around Pennsylvania becoming more aggressive in Lycoming County out in Westmoreland, they are now legitimately becoming a counterbalance, a check on how money is spent. So here is an example at the local level how people can have a direct impact on governance. Well, here, here, and you've been super generous with your time and we're in the final uh, throes of the campaign. Give folks a, a sense of what it's going to take to be successful. You know, we have a lot. Of, I, I once had a listener say that uh, hacks is actually a, a badge they wear with honor. So we have a lot of apparatchiks and hacks that listen. So what I mean, what does the GOTV operation look like? To what extent are you leaning on kind of existing networks or new volunteers coming out of the woodwork? Um, how are you allocating your budget? This is going to sound unusual. Again, this comes to terminology. Dismissing somebody as a hacker or a lobbyist is really uh, destructive. You need to have lobbyists who are performing their function for a reason, for educating folks on issues. Have they blurred the lines? Absolutely. And we're looking at legislation now that if you work on a campaign, you can't work for that legislator. Okay. You, you can't mandate good behavior. In terms of bureaucrats, bureaucrats are absolutely necessary. The highest paid government officials are employees who have been there for a while. To me, this was crazy. Oh, I want somebody new. I want to blow it up. I said, well, this would be the only profession governing other people where you don't have to have any experience. And then you talk to everybody, to a man or to a woman, and like after a year or two, oh, this is really hard. Well, yeah, no kidding. It's hard. So I don't, I don't like to call people hacks and I don't like to call, you know, or be pejorative towards lobbyists. The people that are operating below you or, or, or with you are not the problem. It's the people at the top of the pyramid that set the speed limit. So I'm say, if I say to you it's okay to go 150,000 miles an hour with no seatbelts while you're smoking cigarettes and drinking, the result is not going to be good. Okay? If I say to you, and then I, I demonstrate the behavior that I want others to imitate. You get there early, you leave late. I want you to hear, I don't care if there's... A forest fire in Wichita, I want your ass in the seat now. You know, you have a function to perform. You know, I, I, I don't tell me that your grandmother died for the fifth time this month. I don't care who you are, what you are, you're fired, you know. And, okay, believe me, I, I don't get a lot of Hanukkah cards anyway, so I don't really care. The reality is that it's frustrating to me to respond directly to your question about GoTV. I don't have an answer how I get people up. What more can I do? other than assist you to get to the poll, other than assist you to register to vote, it's common knowledge. It's an off-year election. Not a lot of people are going to turn out. If they turn out, it's likely that there'll be an issue that catches their attention. Could be a commercial I do. Could be a flyer I do. I, I mean, anybody you talk to about me will tell you the same thing. He's a pain in the ass, but he's fair. The reality is I will be outspent. I will receive negative mailers. So it comes back to that John Wooden metaphor I told you about, the college coach who won 11 basketball championships. So his first day of practice was teaching people how to put their sneakers on and their socks on. And what I've learned through life is paying attention to detail, focusing on the basics. I'm not expecting a miracle or some feat of magic to occur. I believe Go TV will be related to what I'm doing before knocking on doors doing what I'm normally doing, what I've been doing since 1984. And the people have a right to make a choice. It's very likely if I lose, I'll retire. It's time to go. If people want the status quo, then don't call me. I'm not your 1-800 help you, you know, clean up your crap guy. 
So there's got, and it's not one person. There's got to be a commitment. So, you know, here's the deal. America is a unbelievably complicated and beautiful place. While we have a lot of regression, I never thought in my lifetime you'd see legalization of marijuana, same-sex marriage. You see unbelievable social uh, change. And at the same time, you know, we're still looking for some guy's passport. So that's always the way it is. Since the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s to McCarthyism in the 1950s, this is nothing surprising. This is not anything novel. What I will tell you and what I learned from Karl Rove and George Bush, and it's a very valuable lesson. I think Democrats tend to be too acquiescent and pliable. If you win, even if it's one vote, you know, then you need to govern like you have a mandate. And what people never understood is that mandate doesn't mean, you know, winning with juggernaut numbers. If you won by one vote, and then you run. People are telling you this is what we want you to do. It's a government of the majority, which is interesting because the same people that will resist that theory are the same people that continually elect people with less votes and more electoral representation. So, you know, and here, yeah, yeah, that, that's that, that's a whole other discussion than uh, one but, that we'll have in 2022. Speaking of 2022, last question, Eric. We have multiple candidates running for statewide office that listen and, and their staff as well. Uh, so if we could just get a little granular, as you alluded to, I mean, Dolphin County is pretty diverse. So as you're doing the uh, the Go TV, as you call it, you spending more time in those suburban townships that 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 have better turnout, or the more densely populated city of Harrisburg that maybe is lacking in turnout. Well, the city of Harrisburg, I think, will turn a lot in whether Papenfuss gets in the race. I mean, he's teetering. I'm not sure what he's going to do. Right now, you you know, Harrisburg normally underperforms. So uh, the old machine there, if there was, dissipated after the demise of Mayor Reed. So I think there's areas that have not recognized their potential. Lower Paxton, Derry Township, SWAT era. And then you were talking about this before. The face of Pennsylvania is changing. I've been involved in three high-level cases opposing warehouses and communities that A, didn't want the warehouse, and B, weren't zoned to accommodate a warehouse. So one of the issues that I see emerging, and I don't, you can listen to me or not, is that people like their quality of life. You know, they don't, everything can't be answered by more growth, more tax base. You know, people want balance. If you want balance, if you want control over your life, get on the planning commission, get on the zoning hearing board, get elected to supervisor. In terms of turnout, you never know what cycle it is. Obviously, there's some candidates that I prefer. I don't know if you want me to share them with you. I'm happy to. But we're worlds away from 2022. And what I'm finding, and I've always found in politics, it's not what they like. It's what they don't like. In politics, unfortunately, it's much more organized, easier to organize against an idea than for an idea. When you tell people what you're going to do, you know, they're more interested in what you oppose. You know, you can see it tonight at the school board. I'm against masking. I'm against you taking away my liberties. You know, I was born and raised here. I own a gun, but I don't think you need a bazooka to kill a squirrel. You know, you... Searching for a middle ground, and it's frustrating because most people are actually very moderate. So if you look at what's interesting to me, Derry, Lower Paxton, Swadera is going to be the muscle of the county if you're going to get change. And then I think you have to break apart the northern end. I think there's two northern ends. I think when you start looking at Dolphin and Middle Paxton, that's starting to bloom. It's not the hard red as grots, you know, up so 
All this only matters if you have an organization, a structure, and money. Otherwise, you're pissing in the wind, and that's never a good feeling. This is so true, and uh, sage advice to end on. But Eric, thank you for your time. Good luck in the uh, the final few hours, and certainly good luck uh, tonight at the school board uh, meeting. Sure, Shana Tova, brother. I appreciate it. You too. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing, and while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics.